I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians with me, Ephesians chapter 4. If we were not in COVID days, I would have had a great children's sermon today. I would have brought up Jenga. How many of you know this game, Jenga? (laughs) All right. I see those hands. This is a wonderful game in which there's a tower that's made of little wooden bricks. I think I have one in my pocket here. And, And the premise of it, it's not so much when is the tower going to collapse, it's or if it's going to collapse, it's when it is going to collapse, and who's going to be responsible for it. And so you build this wooden tower, and then each player in the game pulls out a piece of these wooden bricks and puts it on top. And there's tension built within this game as this tower sways back and forth. And its collapse, its doom, is inevitable. And then it it falls and and everyone laughs and and you build it back up again. I think all of us have lived long enough to anticipate times of danger. That if things don't change, a collapse of some sort will happen. And as we look around in our culture today, whether at a national level, a state level, or even at a local level, we see a polarization that is entrenched around a variety of topics, whether that's politics, whether that's the sin of racism, or even issues surrounding the coronavirus. And it seems as if our culture is teaching us one approach to addressing these differences. And that approach is something like this. Surround yourself with people that agree with you, And listen only to those people that agree with you in your ears, with your eyes, and with printed material, only to reinforce that. And then on occasion, lob an insulting grenade onto the other side. And my concern and what's what's driving this message today is that I wanna I, I wanna offer a word of protection for the local church, and that is not to absorb the culture's tactics to dealing with differences. I'm old-fashioned enough to realize, and I'm of this view, that the best platform today to communicate is not Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but the best platform is still an old wooden table with a Bible atop, with two or more people sitting around that table, loving one another enough to hear one another out, opening the Bible to see what it says, and then praying through differences. What I'd like to do today is just bring, a, I think, a, a brief message contained in one verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, that will give us some helps And the motive for this is is if we allow the world to inform us on how to negotiate through differences, I'm afraid it's going to be like that Jenga Tower, that there will be a collapse. But the Bible, the gospel provides an alternative to that, a much better way. So although we're only going to look at one verse, I think there'd be benefit to getting a sense of context 
Again, uh, Ephesians was written to some believers there in Ephesus. The first three chapters of Ephesians have to do with this glorious gospel that we have been presented. And then verses or chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with how we apply that gospel in our life. Pick, with, pick up with me here in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. I don't think there's anything wrong with the public reading of Scripture, so I want to read several verses here, and then we'll zero in on verse 29 in a moment. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And here's verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What I'd like to do today is zero in here on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. The context, as we see, is Paul is communicating to the Christians there in the church of Ephesus that if you have had your sins forgiven, you have received the grace of God, then you are to live differently. And one of the ways that you live differently is the words that come out of your mouth are different than when you were not a Christian. And so he's going to first give us a negative And then he's going to offer us a positive. Look with me again here at verse 29. The negative is this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I think we need to spend a little time thinking about what that word corrupt, corrupting means. 
You see in your outline that the Greek word is the word sapras, which means rotten, spoiled, putrefied, or worn out. I'm just thinking within our own kitchen. This might be hard for you to believe this, but there are times that food actually spoils on our counter. I can think of times in the warm summer months where a banana that was once beautiful and yellow is now brown and darkening in the mush and, and fading in the black. I can think of times where I've opened the, the cupboard doors above our oven and I've seen bread, and when I've pulled it out, it has, it's moldy. I can think of also times where I've reached into a refrigerator and, and grabbed a gallon of milk that is well past its due date and pouring it out and it comes out in lumps and, and curds. And if any of us would try to eat this or drink this stuff, we would be repulsed and we would get sick. And this is what Paul is saying. Your words can be like that as well. Is that your words can be so soiled, so ruined, that they will make people sick. Emotionally sick. Maybe even spiritually sick. Now, what would be some examples of corrupt words? Well, the reason I read so many verses is because there are other instances within this passage where he refers to what I think would be corrupt words. Look with me at verse 25. Paul wrote to the church there in Ephesus, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. One example of corrupt words would be falsehood. These would be lies. As a Christian, we are not to spread lies. And now lies could be full lies, but they could also be half-truths, right? And as we've gone through this last election cycle, well, there's been no shortage of half-truths that have been shared, either through commercials or through the debate platform, where there'll be one kernel of a thought, and the opponent will twist that and build a whole campaign upon that. Christians are not to follow that example. We are to be different. Let me give you another example from this passage of what corrupt words might be like. Look with me at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. I was looking up in a dictionary. What does slander mean? This is what Webster said. The utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. In recent years, we've heard this phrase, fake news, that has come across all sorts of social media platforms that seem geared towards slander, to take something and to try to ruin someone's reputation, even if that news is not accurate or not. And Christians are held to a higher standard. We are not to slander another person, certainly not slander someone within the church. 
There is a third example of what corrupting language could be like found in Ephesians 5 verse 4. Let there be no filthiness. This is curse words, degrading or disgraceful. In the fall, one of the things I love to do is go fishing down at the Kiwani River. And this is a place where the the king salmons run each September and into October. And men and sometimes women from all over the state will gather at this place. And so over the years, you kind of build some relationships with them. And there was a a dear man that over the years would make a four-hour drive there to get to Kiwani and fish. And he was widely known, at least in my circles, as being an amazing man of profanity. I mean, he, anything that could happen, he would just curse. And I can remember a time, and it was just him and I, and I believe Pastor Jim were down there fishing, and I said to this dear man, you know, one of the great things about the fall is I love to fish here, but I also like to run into people that I only get to see once a year. And you know something about you is, as I believe that if you knew that you were offending me, that you would not offend me. He said, that is absolutely right. I would never intentionally offend you, Chad. And I said, well, here's the thing. You do offend me when you use this language. He says, I I will not do that anymore. I am sorry for doing that. And you know what? He's held to that word for, for these years. And so when I go down there, and he'll text me throughout the year and and, and he'll say, oh, Chad's here. I got I to gotta talk a little bit different now. But, and then there are times when I'll be fishing down there and, and, and some of the guys will say, hey, uh, Danny was here yesterday. Chad, we sure could have used you yesterday. I mean, he, the way he was talking, but I'm glad you're here today, but we sure could have used you yesterday. But here's an example of that. Christians are to have self-control. And here's the point that the Bible tells us that our words come from our heart. And if our words are coming from a heart of grace, then our words ought to reflect that. When I was in college, I was just becoming a new Christian, and there was a young man that I was working out with there in the weight room. And and I think he had just heard the gospel, and yet he had trouble controlling his tongue. And he was mad at himself. He said, this exhibits a lack of self-control. And he is absolutely right. He had never thought about that, until he had become a Christian. Let me give you another example here of what corrupting talk could be. You see it again in verse 4 of chapter 5. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. The word foolish talk. The word foolishness there is in the Greek word moros. It's where we get our word moron. It's the idea of having dull, stupid senseless conversation that has no value at all. Christians are to be more intentional about their words. Here's the last one. Last example that I think we see here in our context, and that is crude joking. Verse 4 again in chapter 5 says, Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now this is intentional. This is the material of stand-up comedians. This is what you see in the late-night talk shows. This is vulgar podcasts that will take a topic and will offer thoughtful innuendo. 
and Christians are to be distinct, different than this. And so Paul is saying, the first thing about speech here is may it not be corrupt, may it not spoil, may it not be putrefied and rotten. So now he's going to turn and says, now let's be positive. Let me give you three things that your speech should be. So let's look again here at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Then he says this, but only such as good for building up. So there's the first thing. Stated positively, our words are to bring life. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, I think I need to say this within the church family, because some of you are like me and and do not like conflict. And so we can go through a passage like this and say, you know what? I'm not going to say anything at all. I'm not going to offer any corrupt words. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Was he is saying one thing that we should do is that we should be willing to build one another up. Our words are good for building up. There are times where we need to say something. There are times where we need to address conflict with us and another person. And to not do that can be sin. It can mean letting the sun go down on your anger. Proverbs 12 verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And certainly, we need to offer words of encouragement and affirmation to one another. But listen to what Proverbs 25 verse 12 says. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Highland Crest, I think, is a magnificent church of encouragement. And you encourage me, and I think you encourage one another, and I sincerely appreciate that, and that does me good. But I think it could be argued that what does us even more good is a word of reproof, is a word of correction. Think back with me, those of you who have been Christians for a while, when were the biggest growth spurts in your life? Probably through some hardships but also probably from someone loving you enough to be able to point out a problem, a defect, a blind spot in your life. You know, I can sit up here this morning and think I'm doing a a great job. I can think of myself with a man full of hair and, 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 and a great preacher, right? And then I watch five minutes on YouTube and I see myself as I am and I'm like, Who's that bald guy? And why does Highland Crest let him continue to preach? (laughs) We need one another to help reprove us, to help correct us. And that is actually building us up. You see it there again in Proverbs 25, verse 12. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Loved ones, we need to be at a place in our life where we are inviting people to identify blind spots in our life. That's when you have a healthy Sunday school class, a healthy Bible study class. What would your marriage be like, those of you who are married, if you never addressed stuff? If your wife didn't help you 
with your fashion? I mean, what, what would you come up to church in, you know? And what if you never address the times where you are annoying your spouse and you're not even aware of it? What would it be like if you never corrected your children? What would they, what would they grow up like? What would you be like in your job if your employer never took time to offer a review and said to you, listen, there's some good stuff here, but you really need to work on this. We need that in these areas, and we need it in our church life as well. So we ought to have words that build one another up, but when I say build one another up, yes, encourage, but also just speak words of truth. Listen to what Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Here's a second thing that verse 29 says to us in Ephesians 4, verse 29, as we're speaking about if you are a Christian now, you're not to have corrupting words, but you're to have words that build one another up. And then here's the second thing that it says, as fits the occasion, that fits the occasion. Gospel words are appropriate words. Proverbs 15, verse 23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Now listen to me. How is it that you and I can have words that are appropriate unless we understand the occasion, unless we understand the situation? As a result, we need to listen. We need to understand one another. Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. This goes back to that old wooden table. and saying, I think you and I see this differently, but I want to listen to you. I want to ask questions of clarification. I want to study you, and I want to study your position. And I want to do that also with my Bible open here on the table to see what the Bible says about this situation. The, the gospel drives us to seek an understanding, to ask questions, to seek clarification, and to study the matter. Proverbs 18, verse 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. We are so prone only to seek one perspective. And we can easily be persuaded. Then having listened, having clarified, having studied the Bible, having prayed, then we are able to offer words that fit the occasion. I'll give you another one under this category, and I think this is a critical. It is keep the main things the main things. I think my favorite preacher is Alistair Begg who says that the, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And, and evidently within the church there in Ephesus, they were, they were struggling with this. Can I read to you some verses here as Paul would write to a young preacher named Timothy? Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14. He said, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. 
In the same chapter, in verse 16, he'll say, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Same chapter, verses 23 and 24, he'll say, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then Paul speaks to another young pastor named Titus who was ministering in the island of Crete. And Titus 3, verses 1 through 2, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak of no one, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Same chapter, verse 9 says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Here's the point that Paul is writing to these young pastors. Within the church, people will get heatly, hot, debated over issues that really have no eternal consequence. I can remember years ago reading in my old ESV study Bible, there's a portion in the back that had to do with doctrine. And there's this wonderful little graphic that looks like a bullseye. If you have your outline, you can see it. In the center of that bullseye is absolutes. And here's the point. This is tier one stuff. As Christians, we need to fight for these absolutes. That God exists. That God is holy. That man is a sinner incapable of being made right with God, that Jesus is God. Jesus was born in the flesh of a virgin. He has come to live a sinless life and ultimately to die in our place. He died for our sins. He fully died. He was fully raised to life. It is only through believing in this and repenting in this that we could be born again. One day, Jesus will return. In order to be a Christian, you need to adhere to these absolutes. But there is a, a second tier, you see it there in your little bullseye, and that is convictions. And there are people from other denominations that will agree to the absolutes, but they will differ on the convictions. Do you know there is something called Seventh-day Baptist? That is, that they agree with the, all those absolutes, but they believe you should worship on Saturday rather than Sunday. Oh, I have a dear friend that him and I would, would agree wholeheartedly in the absolutes, but when it comes to baptism, he does it in a fundamentally different way than I do. And so our convictions are different. Or maybe you know someone that, that adheres to these absolutes, but when it comes to the gift of speaking in tongues, they believe differently about that, and that leads them to a different denomination. And then there's a, a third tier that you see there, and those are our opinions. You remember in Romans chapter 14, the first few verses, the people there in the church in Rome were, were arguing over, can I eat this meat, or should I only eat these vegetables? So there's no shortage of these things for us. These are not absolutes. These are not convictions. But I think you would agree with me that these, these opinions and these questions that we have are often what we 
we argue over. And it's the same thing that was taking place in the church in Ephesus. It's the same thing that was taking place in the church in Crete. So if we want to have words that fit the occasion, I think it would be helpful to say, let us, let's defend the absolutes. Let's be well grounded in our convictions and let us open the scriptures and let us understand what our opinions are and even wrangle with these questions. But when it comes to our opinions and to these questions, we need to offer grace and love to people that differ than us. Keep the main thing the main thing. And then let's finally conclude with what he says, the last part of verse 29. Here's how, what our speech should look like, and that is this, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians, Paul said the same thing when he said in Colossians 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now think with me for a moment. How is it that our words could have grace? Grace is something that is only given through Christ, right? Well, according to Matthew 12, verse 34, our words are a reflection of what's in our heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the context here of Ephesians 4 is if our heart is controlled by the gospel, then that which comes out of our mouth is going to be gospel words. They're going to be grace-filled words. So you're talking with someone this coming week, and they're struggling with legalism because they've been told that they're supposed to read their Bible every day. They're supposed to pray all the time, and they find themselves falling short. Well, they're going to need words of justifying grace to realize that you are not made right with God based on your righteous deeds, but on God's justifying works that was done through Christ, dying in their place. It could be that this afternoon or later this evening or sometime this week, you'll speak with someone that is struggling with a besetting sin. It could be words that come out of their mouth. It could be something else. And it's just like they feel hopeless in this. And you will need to come alongside them and offer words of sanctifying grace. Words that speak about how they are a different person, a new person in Christ, and how sin no longer has dominion over them, to sit down with them and help them form a strategy to overcome that besetting sin. It could be that you will sit along with someone for lunch today And it's as if they're like Job and they're just receiving one wave of affliction after another. And unlike Job's friends that are going to pretend to know what's actually going on in their life and interpret their motives, it may be that what God would have you do is offer some words of sustaining grace. That you would remind them of the promises of God that the work that he began in them, he will see to completion upon the day that Jesus returns, that he has not forgot them, that his presence is still there with them. And there could be one that you would meet with or you would send a card to, and they are going through so much pain, maybe loss, and they need to hear words 
of comforting grace. God would use you to offer these words of grace to them. Before we move on here, what happens? What happens if you have not been doing the positives, but you've been doing the negative? What happens if your words are are reflected in corrupting words? Look with me what it says here in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our words that come out of our mouth can grieve the Spirit of God. I would ask you a question this morning. Are you currently experiencing the blessing of God and the power of God? And if you are not, could it be that you have grieved the Spirit of God? And as you're hearing these words this morning, the Spirit is taking these words and convicting you of corrupting words that have come out of your mouth recently that you have not brought back to the cross. So allow me to offer words as I conclude, words of grace to you. If you are not a Christian, humble yourself. Ask forgiveness for your sins. You will never be able to address the language that's coming from your heart unless you receive a new heart. And you can only receive a new heart when you humble yourself, confess your sins, and receive what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Do that today. Let me offer words of grace to those of you who are like me, that know what it's like to to say something to your spouse, to say something to your children, only moments later to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and have to go to them and ask for forgiveness. Only Jesus is perfect in this area. We need God's forgiving grace, but we also need God's transforming grace in our lives as well. So look to Jesus. And may we, like David, who prayed in Psalm 141, verse 3, say, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Church family, as we just conclude our time together through the preaching, now let's offer application. Application by prayer. I want you to think about, has God spoken to you today about the words that come out of your mouth? He has called us to be different than the world. We are to take our cues from the Scriptures and not from what we're seeing on platforms and not what we're seeing in our culture. We are to talk with one another. With the Bible open, listening to what one another says, and with prayer, seeking relationship, unity, as best we can. Let's pray together as Ms. Vanna comes. As Mr. Scott comes, prepare us for a time of invitation. Lord, as we thank you that you have given us just some practical words today. We can look around our culture and look around our world and say, I know that that is not right. The church is to be different. And one of the ways that we are different 
is that when you save us, our hearts change and the words that come from our hearts change as well. Convict us of these corrupting words. Instead, help the words that come out of our mouth to build up. May they be thoughtful that fit the occasion. Lord, help us with our language. Help us as a church to reprove where we need to reprove, to encourage where we need to encourage, to listen where we need to listen, to be loving and to care for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. If you feel inclined to do this, why don't we offer our bodies a to God afresh this morning, including our tongues, including the words that come out of our mouth, and say, we want to devote these to you. Use these for your good. If you're comfortable doing that, won't you allow me to lead you in this prayer? Lord, you tell us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and that includes our tongue. It includes the words that come out of our mouth. And so that's what we want to do right now. God, use my tongue today to uplift, to praise others, to praise you above and beyond everyone else. In Jesus' name, amen.